all profit is value extraction. And that means that all profit is theft from you. Corporate America is on welfare, and, and they you've got to get them off welfare. Hi, welcome to Cars and Comrades, your socialist podcast about bicycles. We, we've given up on cars. We're not talking about cars anymore. My name is Bryant. We've got Brandon, Zach, and Connor here. How are you all doing? Good. Doing well. I'm, I'm good. And uh, so we are, I think, going to give a little uh, brief project car update here before we get into Bicycles Part 2. Um, this episode is going to cover... Basically, the 20th century, we've got a couple things from the 1890s that I missed on the last uh, go-round, and um, a good bit about how bicycles have been used in warfare, and then also just like uh, some of the some of the more, um, I don't know, subcultures around bicycles, like how bicycles have been used for things other than transportation. So we've got mountain bikes... Um, We've got uh, recumbent bicycles, um, racing bicycles, all kinds of different stuff. Um, I'm probably not going to talk about the Tour de France because I think it's dumb and I hate it. But, uh, you know, maybe that'll be in part three if we get someone on to talk about yeah, it. It's, uh, it's a long bike race, right? Cool. I think we've covered it. Yeah. Do you hate <laughs> it because it's French? Because that's, that's a valid reason. That's a valid reason to hate it. <laughs> Yeah, no, I just, uh, I think, I don't know. I never really got into road bikes and, and racing and stuff like that. Um, my dad was way into it, uh, or probably still is to some degree, but uh, it's not really my thing. Yeah, it's a long... I'm, I'm more into the weird shit. A long bike race in France. There you go. Tour de France yeah. explained. We just did it. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I forget where we were uh, last time, what order we did... Uh, Project car updates. So I think we've been doing reverse alphabetical. So let's do alphabetical. I think. Okay, so I think that means Brandon's turn uh, first. Uh, okay. Well, I just I realized today that things are probably a little fucky because our recordings with turn leftists are probably like going to make the order of things seem weird. Yeah. That yeah. said, yep. it is. If, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, listeners. You're you're hearing like our shit completely out of order. Just like get the you know the general idea of what's going on with our shit show cars. You know, time isn't real. Time is an illusion. Just embrace it. Don't worry about it. Pretty much. Okay. That's that said, if since that episode is probably not going to be out before this episode, I bought a new van. Woo. And yeah. it's a Ford, which is a kind of a no, no for me, but it's my favorite model of van. And it has lived up to the acronym where I have to fix or repair it daily. <laughs> oh, no. Um, after our, I did, in fact, after our last recording, go and lay it in the dark, like, and very cold weather and finish repairing my exhaust. All right. But I got it done that night. Good. And then uh, I busted a valve stem on the top. It's, it's all been completely not Ford related problems. 
just the sort of like shit that is buggy when you buy a new to you very old vehicle. Yeah. Uh, Goodyear tried to scam me yesterday when I just went for a, a very simple, like it was the closest place. I would normally never go there, but I simply needed a new valve stem and the tire remounted on the rim. And they were like, oh, well, we took a look at it and it turns out that your tire is trash and we want to sell you a new one, but also we don't even have any tires that fit on a fucking <laughs> rim this old. So uh, you just have to leave. Uh, <laughs> So I like just put the spare on because they literally took the tire off the rim and then were like, oh, sorry, like can't fix it. Bastards. Which like as an aside, I was able to look at the tire and say like, no, you're wrong. This tire is fine and go to like my regular place. But the reality of what happened there was that they probably pull people in for a $16 repair pull the tire off the rim and then walk back out to the fucking lobby and say, oh, we looked at your tire, it's bad, and now we have to sell you this other tire that's, you know, $150, $200. Yeah, and you ain't leave, you like, weren't leaving without it. I Yeah, like, at that point, like, you either have a spare, if you don't have a spare, it's buy a tire or get a tow out of the fucking Goodyear. Yeah. It's, it's literally extortion. Oh, yeah. Um, Bro, Harbor Freight needs so, to start selling tire mounting machines. Like, <laughs> I, I want to give Harbor Freight they two hundred dollars. Do, do they really? They, I think there because might I be one. To look, buy one. Okay, look, I've looked around. Like, you can. There are some semi affordable tire machines that you can get. Um, sometimes you can find them on Facebook Marketplace and stuff. If I had the room, I would probably have one myself because. You know, I change a lot of tires, so um, yeah, yeah it is a worthwhile life, investment. You gotta, it's you gotta do it <laughs> yeah, often. it's yeah. I think to balance your tires, though, that requires a pretty expensive machine. Ah, uh, you don't need to do that, though. <laughs> I mean, trust me, you do. After what, what I experienced this week. <laughs> but, oh, okay. Uh, we'll get to that. <laughs> well, the, the the long and the short of it was, yeah, I I did have a spare with me, so I that was good enough to get me to my normal tire place who confirmed my suspicion that my tire was fucking perfectly fine. Like they were like, yes, there is a little bit of damage on the, cause I, I drove it about 40 feet out of my parking space and to the next parking space, like got it on the road, realized it was flat and pulled off the road. And so yeah, 30 to 40 feet of driving on a flat tire. Goodyear says it's fucked. My regular tire shops like, no, we can see that like, Yes, it was driven on a flat. It's fine. Like, you're not going to blow up your tire. Just don't do it again. Yeah. And yeah, they had me in and out in 10 minutes for 20 bucks. It was a dude that I know working there. So I just like sat down and bullshitted with him. So like, yeah, Goodyear fucked me over and, and robbed me of two hours of my day. And then my nice local place hooked it up. So yeah, my Ford is back on the road probably shouldn't have been because it's like snowing and shit today and i was fully like sliding around on the road but it was good it's fun sweet it made me nice. remember how awesome a manual can be because my regular brakes just locked up all my wheels but engine braking is a thing <laughs> yeah much better yeah. and that's me i have not had enough free time to do anything other than the basic necessities so cool yep let's see after after we were recording last week, I went down and put the new um, shifter cables on my car. 
um, on my MR2, and I'm pretty sure I put them in backwards. Um, I thought that there was only one way to put them in uh, mm. on on the engine side, and I guess uh, I guess they are interchangeable interchangeable on that side, but you know they're different lengths, so they don't match up to the shifter on the interior. So I gotta redo that. Um, I got I bought a new uh, bushing for the shifter, and I saw a couple different options for sale online and um one of them was like a 3d printed thing for like 14 bucks on etsy and i'm like well okay that'd probably work but you know i want to get the quality one that's like probably made out of delrin or you know like machined or whatever and so i bought one that was like 35 or 40 bucks and it arrived and it was 3d printed (laughs) i knew that process was going (laughs) (laughs) yeah I got swindled, um, but I put it in and it fit fine and it works and it takes all the slop out that was uh, with the, the stock one. So that's nice. Um, and then I had my own adventure with tires. Uh, I, I got a leak on uh, my regular all season tires. And so I swapped out my uh, swapped them out for my snow tires, which I should have done, you know, before it snowed, but whatever. And then uh I was driving to work uh, that Monday, and I'm like, "Oh, these these snow tires are not balanced properly. It was shaking like nuts." So I I dropped it off at the uh, the tire shop that's right next to where I work, and um, yeah, they charged me like ninety bucks to oh, bounce those tires. God but damn. Uh, at least at least it's not shaking on the highway. I mean, it is vibrating a little bit because they're snow tires. You know, at eighty miles an hour, they're going to do something, but. Ninety dollars. Uh, okay, $90 is too goddamn much just for balancing. Too goddamn I much. agree. Way too much money. Um, Especially I, considering that I just found a manual portable wheel balancer from Harbor Freight for $84.99. Damn. Oh, Jesus okay. Christ. <laughs> I don't know if I trust it, but like for that price, I can afford to not trust it. <laughs> I, I'm really, really considering buying. There's a manual tire changer on here for $49.99 as well. I literally okay, spent 120 bucks and do all my own tires. I'm I'm gonna, so I'm gonna stop you right now. I'm gonna stop you real quick though. On a manual tire changer, I, I, I'm not looking at the same picture as you, but I'm really skeptical because the minute you get into any kind of performance tire with a sidewall that is less than 45 or a profile that is like any less than 45, percent it gets real hard. It's so much more difficult. Like that's I Listen, can do. Man. Listen, I have used uh-huh. a car. I've used a car driving over the sidewall oh, of yep. another yep. car's tire <laughs> to break the beat before. This is a step up. This is a huge step up for me in terms of like legitimacy of my work. So, yeah, <laughs> okay, I'm just this gonna... is hard not to do right now. <laughs> I'm like, I'm putting it in the cart in my habit. I'm like fifty. <laughs> at that point yeah do it let me know how it works i might yeah i I might do the same (laughs) (laughs) i'll let you know how it goes one of my friends has a um tire machine that's like pneumatic like you just hook it up to a regular air compressor oh that's um, nifty it it seems to work pretty well i don't know where he got it from yeah yeah i I want it i feel like it's weird that you i mean i guess there's a reason they balance tires but like i have driven you know 
out of town on unbalanced tires because for a while I was just like, fuck it. These are drift tires. I don't want to pay for extra balancing. If it was like, they'd be like, oh, it's 10 bucks a tire or 20 bucks for us to mount and balance. And I was like, what is it just to mount? And they're like 10 bucks. And I'm like, yeah, let's do that. Um, and I've driven <laughs> to events on those and I have not had a problem, but I think maybe I just got lucky. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, these are on steel wheels also that might have something to do with it. Yeah, that could. Um, I like my tires. Like I like my mental health unbalanced. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but when I was, you know, switching the tires over is like, Jesus, steel wheels are so fucking heavy. Like, I don't know. Like you definitely notice it when you're driving too. Like, hmm. I don't know. You know, it's got those big, big sidewalls on the snow tires and, you know, it drives kind of like a Buick right now, but sounds awesome. <laughs> I mean, the Buicks that I've experienced have all been from the '90s. Oh no, it sounds awful. So. <laughs> <laughs> all right, but yeah, that's all I've got. So, Connor, I think you're up. Sweet. Um, all right. Well, then I don't have a whole lot going on, and I feel like it's just it's always kind of the same story with me. Car's not running right. <laughs> um, Camaro is still obviously blown up, so. That's just not even an issue at this point. I'm like, yep, I just pretend it doesn't exist. It's parked somewhere else, and I don't have to worry about it. The Z finally went back to the shop for more troubleshooting. I can't remember if I already mentioned that um, we knew that the mass airflow sensor was giving off shitty temperature data, so I did end up changing that, um, which did not solve the problem, naturally. So I can't remember if I mentioned that before or not, but uh, yeah, changed it, didn't do it. So it went back to the shop um, Thursday evening and I'm going to pick it up after work on Monday because I'm working from home. So I was like, yeah, you know, you got some time to work on it. But, you know, so my guy was troubleshooting it um, and it seems like he may have found some of, again, some of it, like maybe not all of the issues, but some of them. So it's like, fuck it, you know, I'll take it. But it's like he, he did do like a compression test, which he got, you know, obviously it was good. Leak down test was also good. All the cylinders are fucking, you know, equal. Um, and it did hold, I think he said it was 185 PSI, which is good. Obviously, it's freshly rebuilt, so we would want it to be pretty, you know, be very high. But uh, 185 seems like really good. So I was happy to hear that. Uh, leak down test was good. I think, what do you say? Uh, it was only 3% leak down. So it's it leaks out very, very, very slowly. So also good news. So internally, motor's super fucking healthy, which is very good, especially after it's been running shitty all this time. Now, it's still not perfect. He says it rev hangs a little bit, but he did find a wonky little trick that may have fixed most of the issues. So obviously there, the thing was riddled with all kinds of issues, but th and this is, this one's a little goofy. So he found on the website for the company that makes the cams I have, um, which I'm actually going to look up real quick. Cause I want to read what the thing he found was. Cause it's kind of like, it makes me a little upset. We've been troubleshooting all this time, couldn't figure out what was going on, and he finally says, oh yeah, I found this on their website and I tried this trick, and 
it works. So basically there's a hose that goes from the intake to, and I, I, it's some kind of one of the emissions things. So like the EGR or something, there's a hose running off the intake right by the throttle. Um, just a little hose runs there. And I guess what he did was he split that hose, spliced in a T, ran another hose to the crankcase breather. And for some reason, I don't know why, but that seems to have fixed the misfire and the, you know, revving up randomly and the um, just overall shitty running in the bad idle. So, Hmm. yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, look, it's fine that, like, there's some little thing. Oh, hey, you got to add a hose here, whatever. Um, except that the uh, cams didn't say that anywhere, which, again, it'd be kind of like, hey, if you know that this is an issue, like, these are the cams I got are like, they're not like, you know, oh, this is like my first camshaft. Like, these are like the this is the step below your shit is going to be a drag car that like you're fucking getting <laughs> crazy with, which you shouldn't do on these engines because it's just not made for that turbo is the way to go if you want to do that but anyway so like i got pretty aggressive cams so it's like if you knew that this could be an issue like there should be a note in there like hey add a t and a hose that goes to the crankcase breather like i figure it's one of those things that's like it wouldn't hurt even if it wasn't an issue but it clearly was an issue here so anyway my guy was looking on their website and so he's like, oh, yeah, this is how I found it. I'm going to read what it's the title is because you'll just be like, that's that's ridiculous. So it's entitled, I'm going to zoom in, <clears throat> 350Z, 3G35, D-cell stability fix. Do you know what that means? I sure don't. What is D-cell <laughs> stability? What the fuck does that mean? This thing couldn't idle right. The fuck? <laughs> so here's the rest of the title. Um, which it's like, this is like the title. And then here's the description 350Z G35 D cell stability fix for modified cars. When idle speed cannot be adjusted from consult to stabilize idle after rapid throttle drop. Does anyone know what this sounds like, like a wish.com product? Yes. Description. <laughs> yes. It's just like a hundred is... words in a row that kind of all say yeah. the same thing, but don't fucking clarify shit <laughs> they're all yeah you're like those are all words sure how do they go how do they go together so this is jim wolf technologies like uh, they're a well-known brand they're a legit ass company but yeah let me again read this one more time because again i was just like what what is a consult what the fuck does that mean um what is a rapid throttle drop did i have that i don't know um yeah so g35 or 350z Stability fix for modified cars when idle speed cannot be adjusted from consult to stabilize idle after rapid throttle drop. But apparently that, you know, big bunch of fucking nonsense might have fixed a lot of the problems with my car. That literally sounds like when you have uh, uh, like something about cars written by someone who's never <laughs> turned a wrench in their fucking life. Yes. <laughs> But no, even, like, yeah, even that. Like, all of that is just terms that they Googled and have cobbled together and don't mean anything. Yeah. So, again, I'm like, good good on you for trying that because I would not have clicked on that. <laughs> just being, keeping it real, I would not have clicked that link. 
So he did. He tried it, and he says it's it's idling way better. He says it's way easier to drive. He's you know it's it's not getting all fucky. He says the fuel trims are holding solid right now, and they're not doing any long term uh, fuel trim correction, which is good because like that when I was looking at the fuel trims, it was like adding it was like adding ten percent more fuel like consistently, and I was like that's not right. That is incorrect. <laughs> That's a problem. Um, so, yeah, he says it still rev hangs a little bit, so it's not like perfect. Although that may just be the new normal, I don't know. But um, he did this fix, and uh, it seems like it made a difference in theory. But it's not all. It's also not the first time I've thought it was fixed. So, you know, gonna hold my breath here a little bit. But uh, I'm very excited if it does work. You know, fingers crossed. So, yeah, that's where I'm at with uh, with the car. And then uh, also worth noting, um, I got a puppy this weekend. So that's super cool, I think. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Hey, so we. Yeah. Never going to have camshaft problems with a dog. That's so <laughs> fucking true. It is. I think I should start pouring money into the dog instead of the cars because the cars are a very <laughs> bad use of my money. <laughs> The reason I'm going to discourage that is every time somebody has to put a lot of money into their animal, it's because of like a catastrophic health problem. So yeah, okay. Let's, let's hope for better health for the dog. Yeah, it's not like you're doing mods on your dog, like <laughs> giving it a slick, you know, nice paint job or a turbo or something. That's true. That's that's a good point. <laughs> I put a lift kit on my dog. I just made a black. <laughs> okay. This dog could use a little lift kit. Like, all right. So she is, we got her from the shelter. She's, um, she's a mud of mutts. Um, she's definitely got some, some kind of shepherd in her, but like her legs are really short. So she's a long ass dog, but her legs are really short. So she's kind of like a German shepherd dots or uh, what are they called? Dash. Hot, what, what's that one dog? The hot dog, the wiener dogs. Dachshunds. Yeah, Dachshunds. Yeah. Yeah. That, it's, Dachshund. she's, yeah, it's not Dotson. <laughs> <laughs> Dotson. Yeah, that's why I was like, wait, no, that's not that's Nissan. What, what am I thinking of? Um so imagine one of those. Two forty C like... dog? That's sick. <laughs> um yeah, fuck a lift kit, lower that dog. <laughs> I mean, yeah, so she's already weirdly low. Very long, pretty low, and it's this goofy looking, but She's cute, so that's fun. Yeah, that, that rules, man. Dachshunds are the lowrider of dogs. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that that reminds me of a little tangent. At, at work, we're making, um, we're making stuff that, that is involved in manufacturing aluminum cans. And um, there's a big, well, like, wooden stuff? crate. Hold on. What stuff? There's aluminum in the cans. That's what else, what else is there? Well, you know, you got to have like all the stamping dies. To, oh, okay. To make the, um, as I understand it, stamping aluminum cans is an infinitely more complicated process than you realize. Yeah, there's there's like a couple of YouTube videos that explain the whole process. It's it's more complicated than you think. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, any aren't there of those like thirty nine? Aren't there like thirty nine different steps between like a blank sheet and then like a finished can or something like that? Something like that. A, a tool and die guy once told me, and I don't know how to confirm this, that uh, cans when they go from a flat sheet to the cylinder, that it's stamped with so much force that for a brief moment the aluminum is liquefied. I could. Jesus. I don't know. I could believe that. 
Yeah, I don't know if it's true, but if you know anything about tool and die work, it's at least believable. Well, so if you think about it, if you are moving, you have a solid structure of atoms. If you move them fast enough to like they're fucking shifting around, that's pretty much what a liquid is, is just like, hey, the atoms can move around. That's what you're doing. So, yeah, if you're quick. Yeah. Well, I know it's a it's a specific alloy of aluminum, like the top and the bottom of a can are different alloys. And I imagine that they used one for the bottom that's a little bit more plastic and able to flow more. But I have no idea. But um, anyways, uh, we have this big like wooden crate of equipment on uh, in the shop somewhere. And it says um, I, I thought it had it has some stuff stenciled on it. And one of them is uh, I thought it said 240 Z. I'm like, is there a Datsun in that crate? I'm like, no, it's 24 ounces. Oh, it's from making 24 ounce cans. Oh, that's disappointing. Yeah. Or maybe. Yeah. See, but, the other thing is like, is it two? Oh, is it two forties worth of, of size? no i mean they do make all kinds of different sizes of of cans like they have those um like those ones that are shaped like a bottle now with the little screw cap oh yep i don't know like i think a lot of them are just kind of dumb and not necessary but that's capitalism for you like yeah why do we need something other than just a regular 12 ounce can well because you gotta you gotta find creative ways to make it look like Make it look like a 14 ounce bottle, but it's actually 11.5. Yeah. <laughs> what a, what a, I said we bring back pull tap cans from the 70s. Yeah. Those are pretty cool. So that, uh, you know, when you go to the beach, you're going to step on it and break your foot open. <laughs> I like to live life on the edge. <laughs> <laughs> like the forward edge. Remember that thing? Uh, never mind. <laughs> nobody remembers that apparently <laughs> sorry where were we before i uh derailed the uh you were talking about your dog yep or we're yeah i'm done with my stuff and yeah i got a dog so not car related at all but i wanted to say it have you picked out a name yet we think we're gonna name her edith okay we, we, we kind of like the um i don't know how to describe it the old timey names for dogs yeah <laughs> like you know what i'm saying like you know, um, yeah, sounds like old old people names Edith. So if you are a listener and your name is Edith, sorry, you know, don't take it personally. What if we have a listener named Edith, but they're like 80 years old, so that tracks with what you just said? Oh, <laughs> no, again, no offense intended. <laughs> no, I, Dude, I mean, hope we have 80 year old listeners. That seems yeah, really rad. That'd be cool. Like, I don't know. You know, be a guest on the show. You probably have some stories. Oh, hell yeah. Hell yeah. That'd be awesome. But anyway, yeah, that's all I got. Cool. Uh, I think that's me then. Um, yep, yep. Since, since our uh, release order is going to be weird, I'll just go over again that I just put a bunch of, well, not a bunch, but a few mods on my 2011 WRX, and I just finished getting my E-Tune completed for those uh so i got a uh cold air intake nice high flow catted downpipe, uh electronic boost control solenoid and then i just put a new uh turbo heat shield on it yesterday but i um i know we were talking before and i was 
guessing maybe 18, possibly 18 and a half PSI boost after the tune was all said and done. Um, and I did not get 18 and a half PSI at the end there. I, uh, I ended up getting 21 pounds. of. Yes. I knew it was going to be higher. I was, I was hoping I was like, Oh, please tell me it's higher. Yes. Hell yeah. (laughs) I was like fully expecting like, okay, yeah, maybe I'll hit like 18 and a half on a good day. Nope. I was doing street pulls and I looked down at them at 21 PSI. I was like, Oh hell yeah, dude, this is sick. (laughs) Fuck. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. Now I immediately need to like, just go through and make sure everything is like super solid on that motor. I think I have a very small valve cover gasket leak that uh, really needs to be addressed now. Uh, I'm like halfway to an oil change in terms of miles, but I'm just going to change the oil now put new spark plugs in it. I'm like, I am not blowing this fucking motor up right after all this work. Yep. But, um, oh, hell yeah. That sounds like, I bet that thing will fucking move. Oh, it's, it's, nah, super it's fun. probably fine. Just put 85 octane in it. See what happens. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll just, uh, throw the E85 in. It'll be great. <laughs> no, no. 85 octane, regular. Oh, gas. 85 octane. Yeah. No, that's, um, yeah, yeah. It's got, it's gotten more, um, it's got more energy per gallon, so it's better. <laughs> you know what? I think that tracks. Definitely. I also have no idea what engine yeah. knock is. No, that, like, bad reasoning, but the, the lower octane fuels are more explosive. <laughs> I mean, they are. <laughs> yeah, just disconnect your knock sensors. <laughs> yeah, it was... It was Okay, so... Oh, I, go ahead, go ahead. I gotta be the stupid guy for a minute. Uh, how does that work? Like, how, when you're making that much boost, do you not need to run, like, race gas? Uh, like how does that not make your compression in the motor like like some like 18 to 1 sort of compression ratio because the compression ratio is very low on factory turbocharged motors like i think stock an ej25 is like 8 point something to 1 compression ratio or like maybe low yeah. nines it's, so it, you can it, add it'll be like, like 20 psi i bet it'll be eight. yeah well, that tells me I've got to redo some math because I, I, I was talking to a buddy about putting a turbocharger on my Ford inline six 300. And, yeah. and the basic math we did said that like I could do about five to six PSI before I start having to run like race gas. Well, I mean, it also depends on like how strong the, the pistons and the bottom end and everything is, you know, you don't want to snap a rod or crack a piston or whatever. No, but at a certain point, like you run an extremely high risk of detonation. Right. So like it really, it doesn't matter. Even if the bottom end was strong enough to handle endless amounts of detonation, it's, it's still not running well. So you, what you would do, um, it's, it's hard it, with carbureted stuff. It's, it gets a little, I, I don't fully understand it, but like you would pull timing basically. Mm-hmm. So you would just have that, you, you would just reduce that timing such that you, you aren't getting it like, where it's going to detonate before the pistons all the way to the top. You're, you're almost going to like wait, you know, instead of advancing your timing, you're just going to let it compress all the way and then start the flame front. So like by the time it happens, it can't like do any damage. So, but the pro the consequences with a carbureted car, all you can do, I think is turn that distributor, which means you would have reduced timing before boost kicks in too which is going to 
basically make it drive like shit until you're in boost. And then all of a sudden it's going to be like a kick in the teeth, which could be cool. But, you know, I, I, I don't fully, you know, I don't know um, with kind of old stuff like that, but that's how I would imagine you would do it is you would just reduce the timing. Doing a little bit of research, I found that this 300 stock is between eight and eight and a half to one compression. 20 pounds of boost. Yeah, buddy. You're good to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and so like a guy at my work actually kind of low, like sort of talked me into putting a turbo on it. Cause like we all read this article where uh, like, I forget what it wasn't hot rod. It was one of the other fucking like online car magazine things. But they built a, a Ford 300 that was making like over 600 pound feet of torque and over 500 horsepower. But they were doing like 15 or 16 pounds of boost to the thing and it would not run on pump gas. Yeah, I think I might have seen that same one. And I don't know, did, was it like fuel injected? They had, it wasn't just a carburetor, was it? I think it was carbureted. Really? Okay. Huh. Yeah, I looked into modifying this motor and found out that like even the cheapest aftermarket intake that I could find was six hundred and something dollars. So I'm like, nope, mm. stock is good. I'm good with stock. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're if you're not looking for a huge power, like maybe just a supercharger and a carburetor would work pretty well. Uh, I, I'm I'm still actually lo- like slightly considering a, a turbo. You could do but, E80, like you it, could do E85. Instead of race yeah. gas, I mean, it's, that's not super accessible around here. I would just be running incredibly low boost because stock it's 150 horsepower. So, like with very slight amounts of boost, I could at least get into the 200 range and increase like drivability. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm not looking for a race motor. I'm just looking for something with a little bit more punch. Yeah. I don't know. I've got a uh, I've got a Mega Squirt ECU. I'll sell you. But uh, yeah, I think that would work with a straight six. You'd have to get, I don't know, maybe there's like a later fuel injected version of that um, that engine that you could get there like the, the intake and everything from. Yeah, there is. I don't know much about it. This is not something I've like put a lot of time and thought into. But um, yeah, definitely forced induction. I, I say go with it. Oh, yeah. I'll figure it out. Is this uh? Should we move on to our subject for the day? What was that Zach? I was just gonna say. Plus, you get cool turbo noises, which I think is worth it, regardless yeah. of power edition. Yeah. Okay, that's a pitfall for me because right now my van sounds weirdly like an old tractor trailer. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's a straight stick, and it's it's. I have side pipes, which is basically just a horizontal version of a tractor trailer's exhaust system. <laughs> yeah. And it really does sound like a small diesel motor until you get past like 3,000 RPMs. Well, now it could sound well, like it a, can sound like a small turbo exactly diesel. Exactly what I was going to say. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could put twin turbos with twin side pipes on it, or twin scroll. Eh. Yeah. I mean, you'd st- you'd have a single exhaust with that, though. I think. Oh, I guess unless you split yeah. it. You could you could split it unnecessarily. That I don't know. That kind of bothers me. I I don't know. Zach, does your I forget if your year of WRX has the the thing the muffler where it splits in two in the back. It does. Yeah. But yeah, I never really got the appeal of that. It's just like 
you have a single exhaust pipe and then it splits in half with a Y. There's, <laughs> there's real no reason for that. I mean, aesthetically, aesthetically, I enjoy it. Um, but like mechanically, it makes no sense. But I just do like the symmetry. Right. I do like the symmetry out the back. And stock, it has like the quad tip exhaust. So like not only does it Y, like kind of midway back, there's <laughs> yeah. also four tips back there. And I think that's fucking stupid. But the catback that I have has like two big four inch single exits uh, at like almost like 45 degrees out the back. And I think okay. that's pretty tight. You know, I did think of one situation where it makes sense. And that's to um, if you have like one of those, um, what do you call it? Butterfly valves in the exhaust oh. where it bypasses the muffler. Yeah. I think technically having two mufflers out the back does reduce noise also because it splits that exhaust mm. pulse and then muffles it through two exits. Yeah, that's probably true. Um, I don't know. I've yeah. heard some similar setups hmm. to my Never car with about a that. single exit that sound just rowdier. Like mine's still pretty loud. It's a, you know, it's mm. a three inch downpipe and then three inch cat back all the way back into four inch mufflers. Uh, and so it's pretty loud, but it, the single exits just kind of sound rowdy, I think, because all that exhaust pulse is coming out the single exit and it's just kind of overlapping some and, right. and not as muffled. But, you know, yeah, it's it's personal preference, I think. At the end of the day. All right, so we're back and uh, we're talking about bicycles here. So a couple things that I missed last time around that I uh, in my research was um, in 1895, the first electric bicycle was patented by a guy named Ogden Bolton Jr. And um, it actually had a, a power output of around a uh, thousand watts. So like it had decent power, um, you know, that's about like what your typical uh, e-bike will have today, but it was, you know, lead acid batteries and DC motor. So not the, uh, you know, maybe it consumed a thousand watts, but it might not have put out that much power. You know, it probably wasn't the most efficient thing. I mean, e-bikes today are really only possible because you have uh, lithium batteries and, uh, AC motors with modern controllers. So like electric bikes kind of sucked up until like, I don't know, 10, 20 years ago or something. Hmm. And that's why they didn't really come up because, you know, no one really messed around with them too much. Um, but I don't know. I, that's one of my projects that I want to, once I'm done with my MR2 and, you know, fixing my Sabru, I kind of want to build an electric bike and, uh, it's pretty easy now. Like they make kits for it and you can get, you know, a couple horsepower, couple, you know, a few thousand Watts out for not too much money, but I don't know. That's maybe that's another, uh, another podcast, but also in 1895, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, then president of the board of New York city police commissioners created what became known as the scorcher squad a unit of 29 police bicyclists who pursued runaway horses and nabbed reckless carriage drivers. <laughs> uh... Bro, cops have been fucking with street racers since day one, man. Like, let me rip my carriage around with the boys. 
Why you gotta ask me? Oh, uh, have you guys ever seen a video of like Amish kids racing their their buggies? It's pretty fun. Oh, that shit looks terrifying. Is, is, it, is, is it just like innate in our nature that if it has wheels, we're gonna race it? Like, uh, yeah. I mean, I'll get to that. Like, there's a bunch of people just racing dumb shit in this episode. So, fun story I have about police bikes that will take just a second. Yeah, uh, back at a, a house that I used to live in in a different city. One day, a friend of our, uh, like it was five, six people that lived in the house, and uh, one of our friends shows up on a police bicycle, and we're like, "What the fuck did you do?" And he's like, "I don't know. I just saw it sitting outside of a restaurant, so I rode away on it." <laughs> oh, that's great! Oh man, yeah, that's practice like, right there. How much fucking trouble does the cop get into? <laughs> having someone steal his bicycle oh my god hold on so he's got his boss who's gonna come in and be like oh, did you lock up your bicycle well that's why it got stolen oh man he's gonna be treated like a child <laughs> love it there's no way that didn't happen oh that's great so yeah so now uh i get into the section of uh you know bicycles used in warfare so basically starting in the 1890s when you had the bicycle, the first big bicycle boom, um, you know, people were like, Hey, maybe these would be good for like scouts and messengers. And, uh, that's what they were used for a lot, especially like during the world, the first world war. Um, you know, just going, you know, back between the front lines and headquarters with messages and, uh, packages and stuff. And then during world war two, uh, the German and Japanese armies, both used bicycles a lot for troop transports. Uh, basically, you know, rather than marching for miles and miles, they would uh, get bicycles and uh, go a lot quicker and be a lot less tired at the end. And uh, most of these were stolen from civilians. Uh, so <laughs> the Germans, when they went in through Belgium and the Netherlands, took a shit ton of bicycles from those countries because, you know, those countries both had a lot of bicycles and they're like, mine now. And then the Japanese uh, took a bunch of uh, British colonial bicycles um, from Malaysia and Singapore uh, when they invaded. And, you know, that aided sort of their their quick and stealthy invasion of those British colonies. Huh. And uh, they the, the Nazis also invaded the Soviet Union on bicycles to some degree. But um, when the uh, combined Italian and German invasion of Ukraine went in on bicycles, uh, they got bogged down in the mud and got stuck and abandoned them. So that didn't work out so good. Weird. I didn't, I guess I just did not realize that there was bikes being used in wars at all. So. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of interesting because like, I don't know, in, in World War II, there was like even horses being used, like uh, cavalry. So like, it was one of those weird moments in history where you had a lot of like old technology and then a lot of like new technology you had it like horses and jet airplanes and you know yeah. bicycles and i don't know i have i have so many questions about the concept of trying to go into russia on bicycle <laughs> <laughs> like who the fuck looks at siberia and says yeah I, i'll ride a bicycle across that i mean it didn't go well for them so <laughs> it, it was well, more no, than... it didn't go well but who couldn't have seen that coming nazis i guess well, if they were smart, they wouldn't have been Nazis to begin with. I mean, they were all messed up. They thought they could do anything. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, I didn't think about that. That's probably a big factor in, in why they're able to, you know, blitzkrieg so quick yeah. is just they're all on meth. You know, one thing this kind of highlights to me is just like how much of a, uh, like a pyramid scheme fascism is. Like, you know, they had to like steal civilian bicycles to, <laughs> to, to do the blitzkrieg. And also like, what I forget where I heard this, but one of the major reasons why they invaded Czechoslovakia in the first place is just to steal their money and their resources. They're like, we're shit. Our government is running out of money. Let's go, you know, get all the money from the Czech banks and, and add that to our war effort or whatever. I mean, yeah, it's uh fascism is capitalism in crisis. It's yeah. <laughs> like, Oh, we ran out of money. Got to go steal some. Yeah. Which is a, a common state for capitalism, unfortunately. That I, honestly, I find that the most relatable part of it because it's like for a long time when I was like, "Oh, we're out of food in the house. Better go steal some." <laughs> <laughs> that's that's horseshoe theory right there. <laughs> it's almost like we live under capitalism and we have to do shitty capitalist things to survive, like steal shit. Exactly. No, that's just fun. <laughs> I mean that too, <laughs> but so uh, later on in the war, um, uh, Allied paratroopers uh, carried British BSA folding bicycles while parachuting into Normandy, and uh, amphibious assault units used bicycles to carry supplies from the landing crafts up to the front lines. So you know, um, the- thinking about it, if I'm parachuting into a country and it's like I got to get around, it's either walk your ass there or here's a shitty little folding bike i do think i'd like the folding bike yeah i would rather do that than walk i mean they look like pretty decent folding bikes for the 1940s like i'm sure they're made of steel and they're pretty heavy but like they're not that different from a modern folding bike it's just you undo a couple wing nuts and you know fold it in half and Hmm. you're good to go this whole show is a couple of wing nuts coming undone (laughs) (laughs) Hey. <laughs> oh. Uh. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, another thing I came across that's not in my notes is uh, like in Asia, um, folding bikes are real big because you can just take them on public transit or fold them up and put them in the office when you're not using it. Uh, I'm mm-hmm. not really sure why they never really took off in other places, but I don't know. It seems like a pretty practical thing to have if you're um, getting around on the subway or whatever. The problem with folding bikes is not really legitimate, but it's that they are as functional as they are stupid looking. Yeah. (laughs) It's just, yeah, it's purely aesthetics. People are just like, that looks silly, so I'm not going to do it. People will make fun of me. Yeah. I mean, they are good for commuting, though. (laughs) I mean, we're car people. We definitely do stuff that is purely aesthetic all the time. Like putting dual exit on a single turbo car. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> i'm running side pipes so also during uh world war ii uh the the partisans the resistance used bicycles a lot to, as uh you know for messaging messengers um to uh, avoid you know radio messages getting intercepted or whatever and uh there's a famous italian bicycle racer uh named gino bartali um he was seven time king of the mountains in the uh uh giro d'italia the um it's basically the italian equivalent of the tour de france so uh gino uh in his racing kit 
aided the Italian resistance by delivering messages under the pretense that he was on training rides. Dope. So that's he would dope. Like, he'd like put on his jersey and go <laughs> go run messages for the resistance. And they you know, when he gets stopped by the fascists, he's like, "No, no, I'm just working out here." You know. Nice. Yeah. See, we need clever shit like that when the inevitable happens here. Oh, yeah. that's dark. <laughs> he was dark, truly but... a member, truly a member of the Soletariat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I saw a picture of his um one of his racing bikes, I think from the fifties. And uh, it looked pretty similar to like a modern road bike. Like, I don't know. I think we talked last time about how bicycle technology hasn't really changed that much as far as like just the geometry and the frame and everything. Yeah. I mean, the one thing that was different on his was the derailleur it was pretty primitive looking the, the shifter mechanism and all that. But, um, yeah, it's a basic steel frame road bike. I mean, once they figured out triangles, they pretty much had it down. <laughs> yeah. It took them an uncomfortable amount of time to do, I might add. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, humanity has made a lot of uh, progress in the last like 100 or 200 years, but it's because you're like, yeah, you got all the easy shit. Like, duh. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Some of the progress, I was just like, I can't believe we were. It took us this long, to be honest. So yeah, it's like, look at this genius inventor who is now a titan of industry because he solved the problem of triangles. Wow, real <laughs> proud of you, buddy. You're fucking god. <laughs> uh, so at the end of the war, as Germany began to lose and suck shit and retreat. Fuck um, yeah! Woo! Sorry. <laughs> the uh, they formed something called the Volkssturm militia, and uh, this was basically like all the like teenage boys and old guys that weren't enlisted in the uh, in the regular army, who just really, really loved fascism. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> who just they were true believers. Um, so they got a bunch of teenage boys and put them on bicycles with uh, bazookas, uh, pan- Panzerfaust uh, bazookas, uh, and told them, "Hey, all right, go go take out the Red Army on your bicycle." And uh, <laughs> how did that, that go? Not not so good for the Nazis. Yeah, <laughs> Nazi cyclists, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> I would have simply applied like Grand Theft Auto physics to riding a bicycle and I would have mounted it backwards and fired it as I was running away <laughs> so that I also ran away really fast. Yeah. And but that's why the Nazis were idiots. Yeah. Cuz they couldn't figure out how to use a bazooka as propulsion for a bicycle. <laughs> So as they retreated from the Netherlands, uh, German soldiers, again, stole a bunch of bikes, whatever they could find, and, uh, you know, retreated as best they could. And um, after the war, uh, just to, you know, rub salt in their wounds, uh, Dutch people would also would would often, you know, go across the border and and yell at them, give me back my bike. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. Wow. Ooh. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> or uh, if I can try and pronounce this in, in Dutch, Geef me mijn fates. Nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> I can confirm that's correct. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'll uh, 
I'll, I'll put in a recording of a real Dutch person saying that here if uh, if I can find it. Geef me mijn fiets. No, that's too much work. We don't. We I cannot imagine we have any Dutch listeners or people who speak <laughs> Dutch. Fuck them. Well, my my uh, my dad knows some uh, some Dutch like exchange students from from back in the day, and he was telling he told me that they were doing this shit like well into the seventies. Um, they would like you know drive across the border, like go into whatever village was nearest on the German side, you know, drive around the roundabout in the middle of town, and yell, "Give me back my bike." So it's a, it's a proud tradition over there. <laughs> nice. I like the, chi- the yeah. just childish nature of the taunting. Just really love it. So Switzerland uh, has Swiss army bicycles uh, since 1905. They, uh, they had bicycle infantry. Is, is everything they do in Switzerland just like something army something like Swiss Army bicycle, Swiss Army knife, Swiss can, Army can opener. I don't know, dresser. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it can just do other useless things too. Yeah, I don't but know poorly. I don't know. I don't know a whole lot about Switzerland except that they had, you know, they they used to be like um, the bicycle infantry used to be almost like special forces, like it was a, a prestigious unit to get into. Like it was hard to get into the the bicycle corps or whatever they call it. They, they, yeah, sure. Like it's a bicycle, <laughs> but it's got a bottle opener on it too. Uh, they they use the same basic design of bicycle from 1905 up until like the 1980s, I think. And then they they uh, you know had the a version in the 90s, and then they had a the current version they're using was designed in uh, 2012. But I don't know. That's a that's a pretty good record using like the same design for like 80 years. Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's called cheap. <laughs> that could be part of it too. Yeah, <laughs> they took that Toyota philosophy of design and they're just like, we'll just never change it. We're just going to engineer it really well once. I mean, they weren't that good. They were single speed uh, steel frame bikes with uh, spoon brakes, uh, just a little piece of metal that rubs on the front tire as the brake. We're gonna. We're going to engineer it okay once. <laughs> yeah. The modern versions look pretty decent. They're like, you know, uh, like a, a zero suspension mountain bike, basically, with a sort of rugged derailleur system for the the gears. Hmm. So that brings us to... Their, their, their motto should be yesterday's technology tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> so that brings us to 1950, when the Flying Pigeon Bicycle began being produced in China. Woo! All right. So I, I talked a little bit about this on one of the uh, Turn Leftist podcasts, but I'm not sure if that's going to come out before or after this one. So this, I got a little bit obsessed with this this brand of bicycle, uh, mostly because they've built like around half a billion of these <laughs> bikes. Yeah. Like 500 million in the last, what, whatever it's been since 1950. I can't do math right now. 72 years yeah 72 years yes thank you i'm stupid got you buddy (laughs) so uh this was a brainchild of a worker whose name i'm not going to try to pronounce and it was based on uh 1930 design uh for an english raleigh roadster so that that basic upright city bike that we were talking about last time is the roadster style 
And the flying pigeon, it's a little bit of a mistranslation. It's really supposed to be like a dove, like a white dove, symbolizing peace. Um, because this is when the uh, the Korean War was going on. Hmm. And uh, so a bicycle at this time was regarded as one of the three must-haves for every citizen, uh, according to the Communist Party, alongside a sewing machine and a watch. Uh, these were sort of essential items of life that offered a hint of wealth okay. and also sort of like showed off that, you know, China can manufacture stuff. We're not just a, a peasant country or whatever. We can, you know, be uh, on the scene, as it were, uh, internationally. Hmm. Sort of a, a symbol of the egalitarian social system that they were trying to build. So, you know, the revolution or the when the communist Chinese, the, the Chinese Communist Party took over, what, the year before, 1949, uh, so, you know, this was sort of their, their part of their big, um, propaganda thing. Yeah. So D Deng Xiaoping uh, defined prosperity as a flying pigeon in every household. So kind of like a chicken in every pot, but with a bicycle, it could, act a flying pigeon in every pot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it could cost up to four months wages for a typical worker, uh, with a waiting list of several years. But still, you know, people were all about these bikes. Like, you know, you'll still see them all over the place in China. They're they're pretty basic uh, steel steel frame bicycle with a single speed, uh, twenty eight inch wheels. They've got you know fenders, fully covered chain, a nice uh, leather saddle, uh, rear rear rack, um, and then they've got an interesting design, which I guess is a little bit old school. Uh, instead of cable brakes, they've got like steel rods and pivots. Hmm. Yeah. And uh, sort of like the Ford Model T, you could get them in any color you like as long as it's black. <laughs> At least for the civilian model. There were different color ones for different government uh, offices. So dark green was used by the post office. Uh, red was by the fire department. Yellow, orange, and blue uh, were used by different other state businesses. Interesting. Okay. And similar sort of knockoff versions were made in India under the name Atlas and Pakistan by uh, Shorab in uh, 1952. So, you know, researching this, I, I, I said I got a little bit obsessed with these and turns out you can buy them on Alibaba for about um, 40 bucks each if you buy 150 of them at a time. <laughs> and um, I kind of want to do this and, you know, have a like a side hustle selling bicycles out of my garage or something. This is probably a terrible idea, but I kind of want to do it anyways. I was talking with my friend about this and, he's, and he dug up some article from like 10 years ago where someone, I forget if it was in California or New York, was basically doing the same thing. And um, they were selling them for like 600 bucks each retail, which Holy like, shit. that's a hell of a markup. Like, yeah, I don't that's know. Crazy. If you did that, I don't know. If like, you did that kind of markup, I, I think we'd have to let you off this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Unacceptable. <laughs> yeah. So like, I don't know like what the, what the import duties and the taxes and the shipping costs are, but I can't imagine it's that much. Like, I don't know. I guess you've got overhead for, you know, having a business and whatnot, but still like that's probably a pretty healthy profit margin there. Yeah. But I don't know. Maybe we can, uh, if we ever do a Patreon, we can do that as one of the, uh, the prizes is you get a, a bicycle. 
Yeah, that'd be sweet. <laughs> if you donate $600 a month, we'll give you a bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, if, if anyone wants to uh, to invest in my bicycle importing business, you know, hit us up. <laughs> we'll figure it out. But, uh, you know, when I was looking into importing those uh, uh, flying pigeon bicycles, I was talking to my friend about it and uh, he's like, yeah, you know, I don't, I'm not sure like how, you, how much you could sell one of these for and still like make money uh, because like people can just go to Walmart and buy a bike for like a hundred bucks and yeah, it'll be shitty, but you know, people probably don't want to buy a Chinese built bicycle for 600 bucks or whatever. Which is true, and that's a problem. So, Connor, you had something that you wanted to talk about uh, with regards to that. Uh, yes, I actually had an article that I found. Okay, so in reference to you know this idea of like paying kind of a lot of money for essentially a bike, right? Uh, you know, I'll admit I don't want to pay several hundred dollars for a bike when. I could go to any old store and just buy a cheapo bike, right? I don't need it for much. Um, or at least that's what I thought before I did read this article, um, which is an, it's a Vice article, and I'm sure we'll be able to link it in the show notes. But um, it's called uh, Mechanics Ask Walmart and Major Bike Manufacturers to Stop Making and Selling Built-to-Fail Bikes. So this is kind of talking about exactly the kind of bikes that my dumbass would buy. <laughs> Uh, the person they were talking to uh, is Mike uh, Lyman, I think is how you say it, uh, has been a bike mechanic for 18 years, and she's seen her fair share of crappy bikes. Uh, as the program director for uh, Bikes Together in Denver, a nonprofit that provides bicycles, repairs, and education courses to members of the community, uh, Lyman is, isn't adopting the snooty tone of you know high-end bicycle shop sneering at your 14-speed truck with mechanical brakes. She's talking about the kind of bikes hastily wrenched together out of flat-packed boxes by people with minimal training that mechanics have long called bike-shaped objects. Bikes with misaligned wheels, forks on backwards, and and faulty handlebars. Um, Bikes that basically break after just a few dozen hours of use and cannot be repaired. Um, By her estimation, the crappy bike problem has gotten increasingly worse over the last 10 years. Um because of capitalism, obviously. <laughs> uh, but it was the bike boom accompany, accompanying the pandemic and the ensuing wave of people with broken bikes that spurred Lyman to finally do something about it. Uh, so she started a petition basically asking manufacturers and big bike retailers like Walmart and such uh, to stop producing and selling bikes that fall apart after a few months of use. We are tired of telling distraught customers and riders that their bikes are made too poorly to fix, and we are tired of seeing these bikes filling up our waste streams. Frankly, you should be ashamed of selling bikes that last some 90 riding hours. Now, to that, I would say, for the manufacturers, uh, it's brilliant. They make a bunch of money, they spend very little making them, and then you buy another fucking cheapo bike. Because I think this kind of does go back to like what we were talking about which I can't remember, were we recording when we were talking about those uh, books with the boots and stuff? Oh, the Discworld books? No, I don't think we were recording. Sorry, I was eating something. Oh, okay. Um, 
but basically from from that series you know there's this uh thing that does go around which is like how you know poverty charges interest right like if you have these cheap boots they'll wear out and you'll have to keep buying you know pairs and pairs of boots spending more money than if you could just afford a nice pair of boots it's kind of the same idea here with these bikes like if you could legit afford a good decent bike like you know the flying pigeons that were made in china which last you know people are still riding them around what 70 years later or whatever that's a good fucking bike and like this is kind of the same thing you hear about like you know especially boomers and shit like can play oh they don't make things like they used to and it's like yeah that's because of capitalism you fucking assholes like thanks <laughs> we could have enjoyed that too but of course you know you always have to expand your market you always have to sell more which means make shittier products and that's a big problem with these bikes so yeah if you're thinking if you need a bike um and you need something that has to be cheap you know we've all been there if that's what you got to do that's what you got to do but it is probably better to read the reviews because apparently these bikes that come from walmart a good percentage of them just get totally fucked and i didn't know that i thought i was like oh they're bikes right what's wrong with them but apparently they're pretty shitty sometimes um yeah and it's been like that for a while like i remember uh when i was in high school um a friend of a friend bought one of these Walmart bikes and it broke immediately after like the first time you rode it. Yeah. So that's so shitty. I mean, like in this article, you know, it says, you know, um, crappy bikes can be found at any major retailer tailor that sells bikes for less than $500. And then it does note that, you know, price alone doesn't dictate if a bike is built to fail. Uh, a decent repairable bike can be had for less than that. Um, at Walmart, we're committed to providing, oh, this is from Walmart, I think from, you know, at Walmart, we're committed to providing families access to quality items at affordable prices. Spokesperson who gives a fuck says (laughs) (laughs) we're always listening when it comes to ways we can better serve our customers and are looking into the concerns raised by this petition. Uh, no, they are not. Um, (laughs) so yeah, um, but, you know, basically she goes on to like point out, and I don't want to just like sit here and verbatim read the article, but like she points out that like she sees this shit come into the shop all the time. And, you know, it's she's like, oh, especially now that people are buying more of them um, because of the pandemic, people are just looking for a cheap alternative to like, oh, OK, I can get a bike. And so they get this cheapo one and she's noticing, you know, literally bent or damaged frames, which I'm like, Jesus, how does that even happen? Um you know, snapped crank arms, broken forks, busted welds, which I'm like, yeah, some of them welds are shitty. <laughs> so she sees all this kind of stuff happen when it comes in, it can't really be repaired. So that's kind of the like, if you're buying a bike, really be careful. Cause like I genuinely myself did not know that like there were issues with these cheap bikes. I was like, Oh, you know, it's a bike, you know, we've been making them for 200 years or whatever, or a hundred years. Like sure. I'm sure they're fine. Like, <laughs> They've got to be good at making them by now. Um, but capitalism's a bitch. So, yeah. Some some of these can be more expensive than they're actually fucking worth. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, the, like, but you get, like, the Flying Pigeon from, uh, like, China, and that's actually a good quality bike. It might cost more to get imported to the United States and everything, but who knows? We may need we may need old communist stuff to uh, bail us out of this uh, shitty stuff we have here. 
I used to be a really avid cyclist, and, and I'm I'm not gonna like back the the flying pigeon that hard. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say I don't I don't know how good they are. Like, I mean, I think they're just pretty basic, simple machines that it's hard for them to break. So not I mean, a lot can go wrong, you know. I think that's probably pretty accurate. <laughs> and and they weigh like fifty pounds, so like yeah, they're not they're pretty rugged. I I did like the the. The quote um, from someone named Bisker in this article who says, uh, you know, if you have like a good quality bicycle that can be adjusted, overhauled and have, you know, parts replaced, uh, it's it's basically immortal. Yeah. So like, (laughs) you know, a a quality bicycle will last you for decades, if not, you know, a century. Yeah. I mean, which I didn't know. I was like, oh, you, mean, you don't need a bike every few years. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, definitely don't buy a, a full suspension mountain bike at Walmart for like a hundred bucks. Uh, that's, you know, I literally would have done that. Like I, <laughs> the only reason I haven't done that yet is because I live in an apartment and like, we don't have room for bikes. My partner, on the other hand, she's, she's so much better than I am, but she'll like read the reviews for shit. And she's like, no, we're going to get the good stuff. She follows like <laughs> subreddits for buy it for life. And she's like, no, no you're going to buy the best goddamn thing. Cause I'm not buying more. And I'm just like, Oh, let's go to Walmart and buy the piece of shit, whatever. Cause I'm in that mentality. And she's correct to be clear. You know, she's not yeah. going to listen to this podcast, but just in case she is correct. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean that. I mean that genuinely, like I am still, bad about this where i'm like i'll buy the cheapo one or the thing that i am not reading the reviews on at all oh it's fine but no if you can a, a bike's a pretty big purchase so you should look into that a little bit more i think yeah 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 and and you can buy a used one off craigslist that's you know decent uh for one or two hundred bucks and it'll last you for a good few years Hopefully, unless it's you're buying a used Walmart bike and then yeah, no, all bets are off. <laughs> you, you you can still do some research on what you're buying off of Craigslist. Yeah, that's true. I just I'm so lazy. I'm the worst. <laughs> I need to do. I should start doing the way I research car parts, but for other things. Yeah, oh, you definitely should. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's a really good habit. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to be honest. I just. I'm so fortunate to be with my partner who she will just do that. And like, she does it for both of us. <laughs> so that's great. I'm very fortunate for that. Well, and, and if you can't fit a regular bicycle in your apartment, maybe you get a folding bike. That's true. Yeah. That's not a bad idea. That's not a bad idea at all. I'm going to look into this folding bicycles. Anyway, <laughs> sorry, continuing. <laughs> no, it's all good. Um, so in 1954, um, Viet Minh forces began a siege of the French colonial fortress at Dien Bien Phu. Uh, this was a major decisive battle and marked the beginning of the end for the French occupation of Indochina. Uh, and it was made possible by a months-long supply caravan of modified bicycles, which could carry up to 600 pounds on rough roads and trails. That's pretty good. Yeah, so they took off the seat and then they built like a cargo rack out of uh, metal wood or bamboo kind of lashed in place. Uh, And then you had like a long bamboo pole off to the side connected to the handlebars so you could kind of walk it along next to it. They favored uh, French-made Peugeot bicycles uh, with Czech-built Favorite 
as their next bike of choice. And some bikes were supplied by China at the time. So I, it didn't say, but I assume some of them were the flying pigeon bikes. They're even used to carry pieces of uh, artillery into the hills around Dien Bien Phu and uh, like air, anti-aircraft guns. So they, you know, break them apart, put them on these bicycles and then reassemble them in the, the hills around the city. Yeah. And then also during the, the Vietnam War with America, they were used to carry supplies on the Ho Chi Minh trails. So there was a, uh, uh, yeah, guerrilla history podcast. Um, they had on, uh, Luna Oi, the YouTuber, uh, from Vietnam. And, uh, she was talking about, I think it was her grandfather participated in this supply caravan to, to, he took like 400 pounds of rice from his village, like a few hundred miles away into Dien Bien Phu. And, uh, that's a really, yeah, it's a really interesting podcast. I'd, I'd recommend it. I'll, I'll put the link in the show notes here, but, um, uh, check it out. It's a really cool story. That is a trip. Meanwhile, in 1950s America, everyone was on uh, those fat, heavy cruiser bicycles, uh, like the ones made by Schwinn. Oh, yep, yep. Whereas in uh, Europe, uh, people were more into light, practical bikes used for everyday transportation, uh, especially when there is fuel rationing. So mopeds also became popular in Europe and Japan. And these were, you know, we did a whole episode about scooters and mopeds. You can go back to that. But... Uh, in the early days, these were just uh, motors that would bolt onto a, an existing bicycle frame. And both uh, Ducati and Honda got their start doing this. Hmm. And, uh, and then they went on to make, you know, purpose-built small motorcycles. There's all, the Soviet Union also made these uh, bolt-on motors. Uh, it was called the D-Series. And then they're still making uh, Chinese reproductions of the same soviet design from the 1950s um you've probably seen them they're these little two-stroke 50cc engines that you know you can buy for like 100 bucks and they bolt onto a bicycle frame i have not Uh, seen those um i think you were i i would not have expected any of i wouldn't expect anyone to have seen these i see them a lot with uh let's say people who might not have a driver's license you know, people call them uh, Dewey cycles around here sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> or uh, or meth bikes. You know, they're they're pretty cheap and terribly made. Uh, you know, they they often you know rattle the the motor mounts loose and uh, stuff like that. But every once in a while, you could get a a quality made one, and it'll last you for a while. Hmm. I just, I guess I never, I never see these around. I, I, you guys all seem to know what they are, but I'm like, I've never, I don't see these ever. <laughs> I don't know. I go to the poor part of town and like go to a Walmart parking lot. You might see one around, but, hmm. uh, uh, or the liquor store, maybe. I, um, let me put it this way. I saw a lot of them when I worked at bars, like all yeah. the time. <laughs> <laughs> that seems, yeah, that seems great. I mean, I don't know. It seems like a little motor. You just bolt to a bike. It seems great. <laughs> Yeah, I'm all. And they'll go like 30 miles an hour, maybe something like that. That seems. I'm actually really wondering what it says about the part of town that I live in that I do see those like somewhat frequently. Yeah, maybe I was being a little judgmental there, but uh, I don't know. I mean, it seems like a great transportation solution to me. I mean, they've they've kind of been modern electric bikes are uh, 
a better solution, but those are like, you know, four or five times the cost. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you just have a hundred bucks and you want to put this, this little shitty two stroke motor on your, on your bike, it's a decent way to get around. So maybe our, our listeners who are, uh, not so wealthy can, can, you know, maybe look into that, I guess. I wouldn't recommend, I would, I would do your homework and try to get the good quality one, not the $99 shipped on eBay one, maybe. So let's see, uh, between 1965 and 1975, there's a, another big, uh, bicycle boom in the U S. Uh, so this started with, um, just simple children's bikes, like sing, single speed kids bikes, uh, you know, for birthdays and Christmas and whatnot. You had like the, the Schwinn Stingray, that kind of thing. But uh, by 1972, it was the first time since the 1890s that that more than half of the bicycles sold in the U.S. were for adults. And uh, this was hmm. driven mostly by the availability of affordable 10-speed road bikes. So this is when you first start getting um, adults riding bicycles for transportation or for racing or just for fun in the U S uh, in the seventies, mostly. And this is, I talked to my dad uh, last week about this cause he was a teenager in the seventies and got a 10 speed and rode it for hundreds of miles at a time. Uh, so that's when he okay. first got into bikes and, and uh, the tour de France and stuff like that. But um, he was telling me about this movie that he saw from 1979 called breaking away. That movie rules. Yeah. It's sort of a coming of age story about this uh, this young guy in a small town in Indiana, I believe, um, who gets really into bicycle racing, and uh, you know wants to uh, get out of his small town. And uh, yeah, it's a pretty fun movie. Yeah, I haven't seen it in a long time, but I really like that movie. All right, fair enough. Also worth mentioning was uh, the movie, I think it was called Quicksilver, which is an earlier Kevin Bacon vehicle where he uh, is a lawyer who decides to give it all up to become a bike messenger. Interesting. Yeah. It's it's kind of a cheesy movie, but it, it's fun. I like it. I feel like that's just a thing that like couldn't happen in capitalism. You're like, hey, I can't take this big of a pay cut. But literally like the movie starts out with like, he's like in his nice suit with his briefcase and he's in the back of a taxi and like a bike messenger just flies by the cab. And he's, it's, it's this sort of like, Oh, like I have all this material wealth, but like that man has freedom <laughs> sort of, sort of thing, which sure there's validity in that, but like, you there know, it's is... also pretty sick when you can afford to pay rent. Um, I think so. I, I, I recently saw it was, Michael Parenti kind of had a point about this um, where he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you'll see this in the movies and shit sometimes where, oh, you know, oh, it's kind of hard to be rich. And, you know, oh, sometimes I would just like to be like a regular free working person. He's like, that's a crock of shit. They are rich (laughs) because they love it. They love being the exploiter class like they are not. There are things that I guess are a challenge about being rich, but that's because that's what life is. It's challenge. He's like, no, they love it. They love being rich. If they didn't, they wouldn't continue to do so. There's a reason they keep that wealth. Um, I would slightly disagree in the sense that I, I think that 
there probably are those individuals who are rich and view like I do like think the, there, like, there's a little there's a little bit of a it's a little bit of both because it can kind of be like yeah these people might be like wow it's actually kind of hard to be in this position and like I've kind of lost all my humanity and my ability to connect with regular people but well, no, also I mean, even, even having gone from dirt poor to like middle class I I, I do like there was a freedom in poverty because you have nothing to lose. That doesn't make it necessarily a better way to live or anything like that. More the point that I was going to make was that if, if you have like these instances, like a a film where they romanticize the notion of, of having less, but being more free, it takes a phenomenon that likely exists and normalizes it and does like what you're saying, where it's, it's creating a, a thing like, well, these, these people are trapped by their wealth. It's like, no, it's, it's, there's probably a, like one out of every like thousand or 10,000 like wealthy to do people do yeah. have that attitude. And this sort of media tries to like normalize that sort of behavior. And, yeah. Like, and I think, like, oh, actually, all of these people are suffering. It's like, no, every now and then there's one like lone guy who like walks away from it all to have something else. But for the most part, they're an exploitative class and they like it that way. Well, and, and I guess it's just like what I'm saying is like, it's it, it's kind of like what you were saying. It's the media person like, oh, look at how it's this is totally true in all these cases. It's like it's usually not. Um, but also like, yeah, I'm sure I'm sure there's an element of truth. It's almost like Hollywood is like romanticizing. It's like they're romanticizing working class life to the working class trying to be like, oh, see, yes. if you were rich, you would wish that you had this life because it's so simple and you don't have to deal <laughs> with all of these yeah. rich people issues. Aren't you happy that your life is simple? And it's just bullshit yep. because it's yep. like, no, I want to like be able to afford rent and food all month long. That's what <laughs> I fucking want. <laughs> So fuck yeah. you for making it seem like these rich assholes would really kill to be in my position. No, motherfucker, I would kill yes. them to be out of this position. Like, yeah, <laughs> this shit sucks, dude. And that's funny enough. Actually, for many of us, that is the goal. Yeah. Right? That's how you get it. That is how you do it. Actually, that's the rule book. Yep. <laughs> A parody, of course. Yeah, in Minecraft or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, I had something I was going to say, but I forgot, but, uh, okay. So we're jumping back in time a little bit, uh, to talk about mountain bikes. So, I mean, mountain biking existed before actual mountain bikes, you know, purpose design mountain bikes existed. Hmm. And, um, the first mountain biking expedition that I could find, uh, was in, uh, the 1890s carried out by the. 25th Bicycle Infantry Corps, uh, which was a group of uh, Buffalo soldiers uh, led by Lieutenant James A. Moss, um, a white guy. Uh, They were stationed at Fort Missoula in Montana. The idea, you know, Moss was like one of these guys that was caught up in the the bicycle craze of the 1890s. And uh, he wanted to show to his superiors that... uh, that cycling was faster than marching and cheaper than traveling on horseback. Uh, so in early August, 1896, uh, Moss and eight volunteers, uh, along with a, along with a surgeon and a reporter made their first excursion. 
uh, pedaling north to McDonald Lake uh, in the Mission Mountains, a four-day, 126-mile round trip. Later that summer, Moss led a 23-day, 800-mile bicycle trek from Fort Missoula to Yellowstone National Park and back again. Uh, and that then in 1890, like yeah, that seems like a fun trip. Yeah, I mean, from the report, uh, you know, the, this reporter went along with them, and he was, you know, talking about how much fun they had, like, you know, going around the geysers and the bubbling mud mud holes or whatever they're called, and um, yeah, it seemed like a fun trip. Let's see. In 1897, they took a 1900 mile one way trip to St. Louis from Missoula. That's 1900 miles. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I, I, yeah. It makes sense, but damn. Yeah. I guess that's, that's further than I thought. Yeah. Uh, basically they got there and they're like, let's take the train back. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so they like went through deep sand in Nebraska. They went through mud. They like broke frames, broke components and stuff. Uh, so they really, you know, this was a, a an actual stretch of bike, uh, biking and then one little anecdote i thought was kind of funny i guess uh somewhere in missouri one of them asked a farmer for permission to camp on his land and the farmer asked are are you guys union soldiers and he's like well i guess so uh but the war has been over for like 30 years uh <laughs> the farmer is like well you can pile right off of this land so he's like, you can, you can what? You can pile right off of this land. So get the fuck out of here is basically uh, what he's saying. Okay, then. Cool. So they're like, yeah, yeah. Okay. Let's, let's go to the next farm down the road. Yeah. See that was probably a little bit. Probably more. good. Good choice. Yeah. Especially for a bunch of black guys uh, in Missouri. Yeah. Uh, in 1897. So, uh, and then in 1898, the Spanish more Spanish American war broke out. Uh, and they're like, we can't, we can't fuck around with bicycles. We're just going to do horses and, and whatnot. So, uh, that was the end of the bicycle corps. Fair enough. So then in, uh, 1955, uh, there was a rough stuff fellowship formed in the United Kingdom for off-roading, uh, bicycles. And, uh, and then in Oregon, uh, in 1966, there was the Chemeketan Club. I'm, uh, that must be like a Native American place name or something. And this guy named uh, Gwen, just says first initial D, last name Gwen. I'm not sure. Okay. Anyways, uh, he built a rough terrain bicycle, uh, sort of like a purpose-built homemade uh, bicycle. Um, and he was the first to call it a mountain bike. Okay. And then uh, in England, 1968, a guy named Jeff Apps, uh, who was a motorcycle uh, racer, started experimenting with off-road bicycle designs. So by the 70s, he actually had a, he had something that you know was was pretty well suited for riding around in uh, muddy off-road conditions in England. So I mean, um, what really defined the to me, the mountain bike is like, it's a regular bike, but there's like a little bit of a shock in front. Is that not an accurate understanding? I mean, you didn't really have shocks until like the late 80s, early 90s, I think, is about when that started. Huh. Yeah, I think early 90s. Um, I'm not sure who, who did that first, but like, 
um, I know a guy who's who's big into like what he calls vintage mountain bikes, which are like older mountain bikes from the nineties. And he's, it's, it's kind of like, uh, how cars were like in the 19 teens. Like it was just like, uh, a lot of innovation going on and there's no standard design for suspension and brakes and wheels and everything. So like, there is a lot of interesting stuff going on and not all of it went anywhere. So he collects these kind of like orphan mountain bikes from the nineties that they look cool, but they're not necessarily the the greatest uh, designs. Yeah. yeah. I guess I just don't like what besides like, uh, Oh, there is some kind of suspension like would even make it different. You're like, it's just a bike. And then you add a little suspension cause you're going over terrain. I can't even imagine what else could possibly be added to that design. But knobby or like knob knobby tires or like anything for traction would be good. Uh, you want your bottom bracket to be a little bit higher so you've got better ground clearance. Oh, yeah, okay. um, you would generally fuck with frame geometry because uh, depending on on the relation between the seat and the bottom bracket and the cranks and everything, uh, you use mu- different muscle groups uh, to pedal. Really? So, like, maybe they were trying to do something with that in, in a subtle way. Um, hmm. Okay. D- different, like, frame design that would, hand, like, alter the way the bike handled. Yeah. And, I mean, you also want, like, kind of uh, straight horizontal handlebars that are kind of wide. Yeah. Um, hmm. What I'm hearing yeah, is okay, lift it and put muddies on it. <laughs> pretty much yeah <laughs> oh uh gear ratios i bet too because oh, yeah. you're like cruising around you're, you're not going to want the same short gear ratios that you're running to like go up a mountain right and and this like really started off in the 70s um in places like uh crested butte colorado and cupertino california um you know mountainous places uh yeah. where people would sort of take they take like heavy schwinn bikes because they had pretty rugged frames and they'd put uh you know big uh knobby tires on them uh you know change the gears put bmx handlebars on them uh and then in california at least this was called uh clunkers before they were called mountain bikes and people would organize races uh basically they'd like hike up uh fire roads in the mountains and then race them down downhill and some of them were steep enough that, uh, you know, they had just coaster brakes in the back. And um, it, towards the end of the hill, you'd get it so hot that it would uh, evaporate all the grease oh, no. out of the, the rear hub. So you'd have to repack the bearings. Uh, and so these were called repack races or repack <laughs> hills. <laughs> and uh, I'll put it in the show notes. There's a really great, uh, like, you know, local news story about this uh these races from the time period like everyone's got you know very 70s fashion very 70s hair mustaches that kind of thing um it's pretty pretty amazing and also like uh gary fisher is in that video like you've probably seen his name on the side of a bike oh yeah he was a real person who built bikes in the mostly in the 70s and 80s and raced them and stuff so that's Let's see. Yeah, that's that's all I have about uh, mountain bikes right now. Um, so uh, I, I'm a big nerd about recumbent bicycles. Um, I've got, I think it's technically a semi-recumbent. Uh, it's a Bike E is the brand. 
um, or maybe it's a, a short wheelbase recumbent. I don't know. There's all these different terms. Um, but basically a recumbent is anything where you're in like a reclined position with your feet forward. Mm. Okay. And so these are most like people started using these mostly because they're a lot more comfortable. Like if you've got back pain or neck pain or something, um, it's a much more natural position to be in than uh, on a road bike, especially. And, you know, that's one reason why I got mine is because I've got back pain. But also, um, they can be more aerodynamic and faster than regular upright bikes, especially if you put like an aerodynamic fa fairing on them. And uh, so it's no one really knows who invented the first recumbent bike. Uh, but there's a, a few designs and patents from the 1890s. Uh, but the first like practical mass produced ones were made in the 1930s by a French guy named uh, Charles Moshe or Charles Moshe. I don't, I'm not, whatever. Um, <laughs> he's also the inventor of uh, the Velo car, also called the Velomobile, um, which is basically like like a tricycle or a, or a quadricycle uh, with like a bodywork around it that's enclosed, so you can ride it around in severe weather. You know, it looks like a little tiny car with with bike wheels on it. Um, they're they're popular in Europe. I, they never really uh, took off in in the U.S., but I kind of want one. They're they're kind of cool. But anyways, he also you know was like, why why don't we do it with just two wheels and see if that works? And it turns out they were really fast. Um, in 1933, uh, Moshe employed racer Francis Faruri. Uh, another, another French guy uh, to pilot a recumbent bike, try and beat some speed records. And they were very successful. They were beating all kinds of records until 1934 when the UCI governing body published a new uh, definition of a racing bicycle that specified how high the bottom bracket could be above the ground, how far it could be in front of the seat and how close it could be to the front wheel which basically banned recumbents from UCI events. Hmm. So this is one of the reasons why I don't like the Tour de France is like, if you had people on a recumbent, especially with a fairing, they would, you know, totally dominate the Tour de France, uh, maybe up until they get to the Alps and the hills and everything. It's uh, wild how like in the, in, in the interest of standardization, things like that, they will absolutely uh, just fuck over innovation. Yeah. Um, like as a brief aside, circle track racing on motorcycles in the seven sixties, maybe seventies was pretty dominated by Harley, but the, they were still racing side valve motors. And when overhead valve motors started to become more common, um, the whatever governing body for those leagues made it so that if you were riding a Harley like side valve motor, you could run a 750. But if you had an overhead valve motor, I think it was capped at 500 cc's. Nice. Yeah. So like the the more innovative design got tighter restrictions because it wasn't like you know fair to whatever else or I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, capitalism constantly stifles innovation. Like, more, really, not even, like, just as, a, like, a fucking joke. Like, it's part of how, cap like, co existing companies that have existing technologies have an interest in protecting their existing technologies from innovation. Like, I, I would say, 
I don't know for a fact in this instance. I don't know if it's really a capitalist thing or what. I, I like, I almost want to say there was some xenophobia because uh, Harley was dominating the race leagues and all of the overhead valve things that were coming were from abroad, like Triumphs, BSAs, later on Hondas. Well, yeah, but it's still the same. Like Harley was the large company in this case who wanted to protect their thing. And I'm sure they had an influence in the race series. You know what I mean? Like, oh, hey, they, hey these 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 other companies are cheating or whatever, you know, with this new design, you know, there's a reason they got special rules. I would, I would think it's, it's certainly not above a company to employ xenophobia in order to protect their own profits too. be like, you don't want those Japanese bikes winning, do (laughs) you? I mean, that being said, again, the early ones that were competing against Harley aggressively were European. They were British mostly. Hey man, they'll be xenophobic against anybody. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I feel like actually hating the British is a pretty valid manifestation. So. I mean, yeah, the hating the British is based, but <laughs> yeah. And in the case of the recumbent bikes, it wasn't. I mean, these are all French people. I'm pretty sure. Like, you know, it was more just like this is the way we've done it for 30, 40 years. We're not going to change everything for your your weird little recumbent bike to <laughs> dominate this whole racing we're not gonna start losing just because you are smarter than us <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so. but like it, it's pretty cool like his first go round, they were able to go an average speed of 27 miles an hour and then i think they got up to like 50 um Jesus. with with like um with someone going in front of them to to you know make like a draft or whatever so yeah, I mean it's it's pretty cool. Like they were making like the aerodynamic fairings out of like wood and canvas and shit back in the thirties. I also wanted to mention, like, similar to how they were used in Vietnam, like a bunch of people around the world will use bicycles just to haul cargo around. And when they can't get like an actual manufactured bicycle, people will carve them out of wood. Hmm. So people in uh Democratic Republic of Congo um, do these. They call them chukudus. Um, and it's not really a bicycle. It's more, I guess, a velocipede or a scooter. Uh, but it's basically just a big old log with a couple wheels and some handlebars on it that you can carry like a thousand pounds of cargo on uh, on some some dirt roads over there. So it's like a it's like a pallet jack, but not for pallets. Yeah, pretty much. That's yeah. dope. I like that. <laughs> There's the Igolot tribe in the Philippines. Um, they also make these like wooden scooter things. And I get the impression that this has now become more of like one of those things they do for tourists. It's not really like a practical thing anymore. Um, they're, they're pretty ornate looking. Um, they've got all these like dragons and uh, like animals and shit carved all over them. Uh, and then they like race them downhill. Uh, it looks pretty cool though. And then uh, speaking of downhill racing, in Medellin, Colombia, uh, there is a sport called uh, gravity racing uh, that's very popular, especially among sort of like the, uh, I guess, what you call the poorer parts of town, uh, especially among like young men, teenage boys. Um, basically, they, they take, they're usually like BMX style bikes. They strip them down to the basic frame. 
they'll stretch them out so that, you know, your seating position is more like a MotoGP bike. Um, and then they'll like hang off the back of trucks going uphill and then ride them downhill. And they'll, they'll race with like no helmets, no lights at night and go like 80 miles an hour. Oh my God. So a lot of them die. Um, it's very dangerous. And like the authorities in the city are like, please stop this. <laughs> they're, they're like, here, have a helmet, please don't die. But it's really cool. Like there's, there's like a bunch of videos on YouTube of this. Uh, if you want to see teenagers going 80 miles an hour on uh, bicycles, it's, it's pretty fun. That's giving me anxiety just thinking. About it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and wait, wait, I, I didn't catch where where does this happen? Uh, in uh, Colombia, mostly around Medellin. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, that's the thing that Medellin's most famous for. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of funny. One of them, one of the guys, had a like a sticker of uh, Escobar's face on the fender. <laughs> so. <laughs> So I, I also wanted to note just like how efficient bicycles are in general. Like even today when everyone is driving cars, like a, a significant portion of the Earth's population gets around on a bicycle. Like, you know, they're carrying cargo, they're using them as taxis just, you know, to get around, which is a is a good thing because, you know, they're zero emissions, they're not wearing out the roads, they're not you know, making potholes and actually riding a bicycle is more efficient per mile than walking. Uh, unless you're going up a steep hill, um, up to, I, I saw different figures between three and five times more efficient than walking. I believe it. And then I, I saw a few different people trying to calculate like what's the miles per gallon equivalent of a bicycle. And I saw anywhere between 63 and 700 miles per gallon. Well, okay, now, hold on. <laughs> I don't think you should be drinking gasoline, okay? <laughs> I just, I don't know if that's going to, that's a bad idea. Well, that's sort of what they were arguing about is because gasoline has like 30,000 calories per gallon. Okay, hold on now. All right. Okay, that's an interesting that seems like a pretty good food source then. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not so edible though. So that they're like, well, what about like a gallon of lard? How much how many calories does that have? Or like a gallon of Big Macs? Like what can we <laughs> what can we make this equivalent to? Um, <laughs> make it so. equivalent to Big Macs. <laughs> I would like to start planning all of my like, how many Big Macs would it take for me to do this activity? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah how, many, how many gallons of, of Big Macs is that? <laughs> I, can, I can get, you know, uh, 30 Big Macs per mile. <laughs> 30 That's gallons. That's bad, actually. 30 gallons yeah. of Big Macs per mile. <laughs> Oh, um, so yeah, uh, I guess the moral of the story is, uh, get out there, ride a bike. It's, it's better than a car in a lot of ways. And, um, you'll be free from your, uh, your bourgeois problems. So that's all I have. Any other thoughts before we, uh, close out here, guys? If you can't afford a bicycle, steal one from a cop. 
Yes. <laughs> and I, they've got to have like GPS trackers on them by now or something. Maybe be careful doing that shit. Yeah. But I, I mean, yeah, be careful in general. Steal it, hide it somewhere discreet for a minute. And if it's still there, when you come back a week later, it's yours. Yeah. It's like letting go of something that you love. If it's if your stolen cop bike is still there in a week, it was always yours. <laughs> oh, I would love, I would love my stolen cop bike so much. Yeah, this, <laughs> this, that sounds like a good idea. Also, you know, look, you could also go to the local rich kid high school and you know nab yourself a, a nice new bike. You know, I mean, they don't ride bikes; they they oh, drive their right. I forgot. BMWs. God damn it! See, I forgot. <laughs> Man, that's I'm just so unfortunate. If your local rich kid high school is in like Boulder, Colorado, though, I mean, there's probably yeah. some granola ass rich kids that ride bikes. Take their shit. There you go. Stealing from kids. Cars and comrades. A- approved <laughs> message. <laughs> hey, steal from children. <laughs> also, if you see any rich babies, steal their candy. <laughs> Uh, steal their Big Macs and then liquefy it (laughs) to fuel your bike riding yes there has to be a better way (laughs) oh man what's how many calories does a a gallon of alcohol have like what is it what does a human get on E85 you know I get pretty fucked up, but I mean, <laughs> I mean, if all the ads that I see are accurate, a, a twelve ounce a thing of 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 six percent alcohol is usually around a hundred calories. Yeah, <laughs> not six percent. Six or wait, Some, yeah. someone do the math on this. Um, quick tangent: I was uh, I was in Vail, Colorado, once, and um, went by a dumpster, and there was a like a charcoal grill in there, just like perfectly fine charcoal grill. So I, I took it and I used it for years until my uh, drunk roommate body slammed it and broke it. So, <laughs> Oh, that's a bummer, though. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> In Philly, we used to have something that we called Pen Christmas, which was when uh, the universities would close, like, like the semester was over for summer, and all the kids moving out of dorms just threw everything away. And yeah. y- you would... Mm-hmm. You would I knew people that found like money, computers. Wait, like, money? Like they just threw cash away? Like what? <laughs> Never. Like we we suspect a lot of that stuff got thrown away on accident. Like you throw away a desk and forget oh. that there's like a hundred bucks in the drawer. Damn! Wow. But they would just ha- they would bring in these huge dumpsters, like a, a like a construction dumpster for kids to throw their shit away in, and you basically got whatever the fuck you wanted. That's dope. Hell yeah! Yeah. So like stealing from the rich people is just preventing them from throwing that away. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. You're just skipping a step. <laughs> it's it's green to steal from rich people. It's also just cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, cool. On that note, uh, you know the drill. Follow us on um, I don't know various social media platforms. Uh, Instagram, Twitter, Hexbear, Reddit, Facebook, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Um, and if you like our podcast, uh, you know, give us a, 
a rating or a review or whatever your app does. I don't know. They're all different, but do that thing. I, I did post the other day a pretty sick uh, video on our Facebook page of uh, a Lada drifting in the snow. Oh, I did. So. I saw that you posted that in the Slack, too. That was, man, that was ballsy i'm like ugh, i don't know if i'd have the courage to do that that he came yeah, it, real close to the curb there i was like oh I, boy i think he might have hit the curb a little with the wheel it was a, uh, <laughs> it was kind of hard to tell but i would so i would i would fuck with that kind of stuff when you're on dry pavement but when you're in snow yeah. i'm just like whoa it's way too unpredictable <laughs> that is bravery <laughs> yeah that, that, that was cool though i i would love to have a drift lotta i if i'm ever ever able to do such a thing it'll happen yeah i will i i would like to do that but i just don't have much hope for it yeah i don't i mean i've seen a few ladas i think they imported them to canada and a few made their way to the u.s hmm. i think one of them uh raced in lemons once but uh nice that's the closest i've been to one so you've seen a few but you haven't seen a lot of them <laughs> <laughs> yeah. correct but yeah, maybe we'll have to do a show just all about Lada's in the future. Yeah, we, they are pretty interesting. We would be uh we would be kind of it, it would be wrong of us not to. Yeah, we'll show them a whole lot of love. <laughs> and that's going to be the episode just Brandon making Lada puns. I, I'm here for it. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks for listening oh. and uh yeah, you know, hope hope you learn some about bikes and maybe want to buy different bikes now because i want a recumbent now that's the thing that i want they're pretty cool except like people don't see you like they're not as visible because you're not up as high i mean i'm used to i'm 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 already used to that i'm in a very low car yeah i'm usually have pretty small wheels so they're like you can't like hop a curb with them but so they're not the greatest for like riding around a city but like if you're on just like a trail away from traffic they're wonderful i i I recommend them highly. So, yeah. Anyway, cool. Thanks for listening. Cool. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. My calculations are correct. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're going to see some serious shit. When left entirely on its own devices, capitalism foists its diseconomies and its toxicity upon the general public and upon the natural environment. And then it does an interesting thing. It eventually begins to devour itself. If the paladins of corporate America want to know what really threatens our way of life, It's their way of life. It don't matter if you win by an inch or a mile. Winning's winning. Uh, It's important that we examine the twin forces behind the Biden candidacy. The billionaires and the Bolsheviks. (laughs) 